0: One of the things that I am learning about grief is that so often we can find ourselves uh, wanting to hurry it to be somewhere other than where we are. In the moments when we feel the grip of grief so intensely, we can want to be somewhere where it doesn't feel quite so intense, and then we move to that space and we kind of feel a little bit absent and we actually long for those moments when we could feel it a little bit more intense. So often we try to hurry grief to places other than where we find ourselves and uh, I want to just encourage us tonight to not do that this week, uh, this month, as we kind of move through things. Um, (laughs) It's a good ringtone. I'm learning that grief can't be hurried. It won't be hurried. And it won't be ignored. We can try to put it in places that we don't go very often and we can try to kind of squash it, but none of that really works, if we're honest. And it comes out in all kinds of moments and times and all that kind of stuff. The one thing grief can be, though, is embraced it can be embraced and that's very difficult um, but it's also very beautiful and in the uh, embracing of grief the bitterness of it in the most supernatural of ways can be transformed into something utterly beautiful and infused with hope I want to remind us of some things tonight but I don't want to hurry you there I want us to feel like we completely have the permission to walk with Jesus and our grief at their pace. At their pace. And we want to allow God to lead us through this as as a community. I think it's possibly the longest introduction I've ever given. Introduction over. Um, The first thing I want to make really clear for us tonight as we reflect on Robert's passing is uh, this was not God's plan. This wasn't uh, God's idea. This is not his will. And I know for some of you that causes some uh, theological hurdles, but it's, it's just true. This wasn't God's idea, and this was not his will. I'm going to teach on this in a fuller way next week, but the bedrock of our uh, theology here at Lagan Valley Vineyard is summed up in three words God is good. God is good. For those of you that have been with us um, from the beginning, you've heard me say often, for most of us, that's as much theology as we will ever need. God is good. He is good. He is good. And it's possible to experience his goodness in our darkest moments of deepest grief and pain possible. I'm going to um, talk about some things that you've heard me talk about before, but maybe for the first time, um, this stuff will move from um, ideas and theology to actually um, life-altering, changing, transforming words um, from Jesus to us. Listen to Revelation chapter 21. It says this. you've ever wondered the question, well, what is God's will, Andy? What what does God really desire? It's as clear as you'll ever hear it or see it. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What is God's will? For him to wipe away every tear from our eyes. God's will is that there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. That's His will. God's will is that we would never have to walk through weeks like we've just walked through. That's His desire. That's His longing. That is the story that we are caught up in. That one day these desires will be made real that one day we will live in an age where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And we won't be thinking about how do we get to be with God or what do I need to pray or do or think or say because he will come and be with us and he will make his home among us and we will be his people and he will be our God. That is the will of God, that's his desire. And we find ourselves in this moment in history where we're somewhere between the dreaming and the coming true. We're somewhere between the beginning of this and the fulfillment of it. And in Northern Ireland, often we can find ourselves slightly sheltered from the more stark sides of evil and the ugliness of the powers and principalities that rule this age that we live in. But in a week like we've just walked through, sometimes too, they come right into our face. And we see... Maybe more clearly than we have for a long time, of exactly what's going on in the world. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, this evil age. That evil is real. And by the way, it's not a person. We'll maybe talk more about that in a minute. But what do we do? How do we respond? do we occupy this space where we are fueled by this vision of a future that has not yet fully invaded our present? Where do we respond in these moments? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to do? Is there any north in this kind of crazy world? There's this mad little verse at the beginning of this passage. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's a beautifully poetic picture of God restoring creation to what he designed and desired it to be, free from the unholy trinity of Satan, sin, and death. But John, the writer of this crazy revelation, has this throwaway line at the end of verse one, and there was no longer any sea. There was no longer any sea, that in this new perfect creation that is coming, the ocean is not present. Forgive me if you've heard me talk about this before. I always find that really weird. I like the ocean. How about you? In fact, walks on beaches are some of my most fun spaces to pray and connect with God and be inspired about what He's doing in the world. And I kind of feel like I want to be like, "No, God, when You make everything new and You're going to come and be with us, can we have the ocean? That would be, you know, what are the kids going to skim rocks into? Like, what? Well, how does this work? Surfing's fun. I could kind of like to surf, and you know." What what is going on here? Why why is there no longer any sea? And, you know, if it was Paul that was writing this revelation, you, you might be forgiven for thinking, well, like he was shipwrecked several times and... You know, it's like, it just couldn't help but, like, imagine a future when there was no more ocean. But, and then you actually realize that uh, John, the guy that wrote this, has been exiled on an island, and maybe the island's not that big, and so he's actually riding on a beach, and all he can see is the monotony of waves, you know, and he's just like, oh, for goodness sake, I'm not, if I'm getting to write the Bible, I'm writing out the ocean, right? <laughs> maybe that's just how I would uh, approach this. Of course, that's not what's going on. The Hebrew mind, the the sea represents something. It represents chaos. It represents darkness and unpredictability. It represents the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. That's what the sea represents. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with the text, it's out of the sea that monsters emerge. This was very real in the mind of those that would be reading this, that that the sea was that space of darkness and unpredictability. The sea was something to be feared that could not be controlled. Something that you took your chances with when you went on a journey and if you just happened to be so unfortunate to get caught in some kind of storm, well, perhaps your life was over. That's what the sea represents. And so when... John is writing that God's gonna make everything new and he is gonna live among us and with us. What he's saying is there will be no more chaos, there will be no more evil, there will be no more darkness, there will be no longer anything from which we need to be terrified of overwhelming us, taking over our lives and literally drowning us in the darkness of it. That's what he says is coming. I don't know about you, but weeks like this, I long for that. Weeks like this, that longing is so tangible for me that the sea would be no more. But what do we do in the meantime? Because I don't think our job is to just gather in rooms like this and try to hype ourselves up into some sort of religious frenzy, denying the reality that the world is indeed full of suffering and pain. That the sea is a reality for so many of us and so many of our communities and so many of our families. What do we do in the meantime? Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 says this. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking in the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking in the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked in the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is a crazy crazy passage and one of the things when we um, experience in our community or read in the scriptures uh, miracles one of the things that I observe in my life often and the life of those around me and even I'm comforted because it's definitely in the life of the disciples too is so often when we get around the miracles of Jesus uh, we can see the miracle but completely miss the meaning And so often we're quick to go, whoa, that was amazing, that was so cool. Wow, my mind is blown, God, you're awesome. But we actually miss the revelation of what's happening in the context of that particular miracle. These are seasoned fishermen. They have spent a lifetime on the sea. It says the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus goes out to them walking in the water. So these men have been battling with the elements with a storm literally all night long. It is just before dawn, that moment of the night when it's at its absolute darkest. These aren't coincidental details here in the story. They're exhausted, exhausted. They're scared. They're unsure what's going to happen. And I don't know what your imagination paints this picture as when you've read this text before, but certainly for me for a long time, whenever I heard stories of Jesus walking on the water, I kind of imagined Castle Welland Lake on a beautifully calm day with somebody similar to like Obi-Wan Kenobi just hovering across it. That was kind of how I imagined things. Um, If you are interested, go home tonight and YouTube um, crazy, mad storms in the ocean, right? Like you get the mad, I I know, sorry, forgive me, I have slightly weird uh, pastimes at the time. But you can can see uh, there just how bad storms in the sea can get. And this story is something much more akin to what you would see in one of those videos than like peaceful Castle Elm Lake. This is a storm in the middle of the night in a little boat. The wind is howling, the waves are crashing. Nobody wants to talk about how far They've got to go to land. Nobody wants to talk or bring up the fact that this might kill them all. They may not get through. None of that's happening. They're just doing everything they can to get their boat through this storm. And then somebody sees something that looks like a person as the waves are rising and falling. Did you see that? I could have sworn I saw somebody out there. They remember what the sea represents. So immediately they go to demon or ghost. That's where they go, that's why they're terrified. The sea is the dominion of darkness. There's monsters lurking beneath it and all of a sudden they start to see something. And they are terrified. Some of us gathered in uh, this very room this time last week. And I shared that when I looked at 2018, I I didn't see a year that was just the continual, wonderful growth of Lagan Valley Vineyard and everything being rosy and great. I said, what I see in 2018 is a year filled with battle and giants. when I got the phone call last Monday about Robert and the details started to come through as to what actually happened, I was really terrified. We stand up here every week and we say, you know, we don't have a vision for a church. We have a dream for our city that the life of Jesus would come to every person in every part. And Sometimes we can be guilty of Falling into that is just rhetoric and a really inspiring idea. Last week I was reminded that that statement is legitimately a battle cry. When we say that, we are saying that we are, as a family, waging war on evil and the ugliness of hopelessness and despair that is rife in our city and in the world. And in the most tragic way, last Monday, it felt like there was a response. And I was pretty scared. I could totally relate to these men on this boat in this moment. Can you imagine when they noticed it was Jesus, like when they when they looked at it and thought, "No, <laughs> no way!" Jesus immediately—they're like literally these are grown men, hardened fishermen—crying out in fear. And Jesus hears them cry and says, "Take courage! Don't be afraid. Take courage! Don't be afraid." And they begin to notice and realize that the thing that they have been most terrified of, Jesus is standing on top of it. In this moment, we often think of the miracle as Jesus can defy gravity. Like, isn't it cool? Jesus can actually defy gravity. He's like above physics. That's totally missing the point. I mean, it's true, right? But that's not what's happening here. In this story, Jesus is standing on the sea. He's standing on the sea. The thing that they are most afraid of, the thing that they believe could literally overwhelm them and drown them in the ugliness and evil of it, Jesus comes to them walking on top of it and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And in so many ways, I wish that was where it ended. He got in the boat and flexed his Jesus muscles and said I'm better than physics and I'm better than the sea and follow me and everything will be okay but that's not what happens take courage is me I'm standing on this thing you're scared of Lord if it's you Peter replies tell me to come to you on the water Come on, then he said. No doubt you've heard many times people preach if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out in the boat. And this text often we like hooray for Peter's incredible faith. And you know, there is truth in that, but again we misunderstand the context of the text. Peter was Peter was a He was a really good Hebrew. He understood the rabbinical model. He understood discipleship. And when somebody followed a rabbi, which is what Jesus was, what's going on there is the rabbi is teaching them how to live the rabbi's life. So everything the rabbi can do, the disciple will eventually do. That's the framework. And then when you read the Gospels, it makes sense. That's why Jesus goes around healing people and then tells his disciples, okay, you go do it now. So Jesus goes around casting out demons and says, okay, you go do it now. That's why Jesus goes around releasing hope and life and freedom to everybody and then says, okay, now you go and do it. And when you read the book of Acts, it's like the ministry of Jesus is just continuing. Why? Because that's the point of discipleship, that everything that's available to the rabbi is available to the disciple. Everything that's available to Jesus is available to those who follow him. Peter understands that. So he says, if it's really you, tell me to come. Because everything that's available to you is available to me. And Jesus looks back and says, well, come on then. My belief that Jesus can stand on the sea is great. But it's moments like this as a community where in faith we see him standing on the sea and have to allow ourselves to hear his voice say, come on then. Come and stand here with me. Come and stand on this with me. Come and model to a community that hatred and violence and evil do not have to define us. Come and model to a community that love can actually win. That it's one of the most powerful creative forces in the world. That when the sea of violence and hatred comes, we do not have to sink underneath it. But that we can stand on top of it with our hearts aching and breaking, and say, this will not drown us. This will not drown us. This is our response. This is our invitation. This is our commission. is what it looks like to bring life to a community. It's not to tell them lies, that bad things will never happen. It's to release the hope that says when they come, we don't need to drown in them. That we don't need to be afraid of our pain, that we don't need to be afraid of questions, that with Jesus we can learn to stand on the things that scare us the most. And we can look all of the evil and all of the hatred dead in the eye and say, you will not overcome us. That's our response. That's what it looks like. And I don't want for a second to suggest to you tonight that it's easy. And that it doesn't cost and that it doesn't hurt. but it's the only thing we would be interested in doing with our lives. I want to finish before we pray by saying again, wherever you are tonight, that's okay. Some of you are stuck at the back of the boat happy that somebody somewhere can hear that it's Jesus and is thinking about getting out. And that's okay. That's okay. We're not trying to hurry this process. We're not trying to move us to somewhere other than we are. But we want to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, come and learn how to stand on this with me. James, why don't you guys come back up? Just as we begin to respond, I want to read another ancient prayer over us. And then the band are going to um, just begin to lead us in in worship, and uh, then we're going to pray for several different um, people and situations as we move into, um, do you need this? And... um, Spiritual warfare for me can be um, summed up in a pretty s- simple phrase. Um, just focus on Jesus. Just focus on Jesus. So as we begin to pray, we're gonna worship and uh, we're just gonna do that together. We're, we're gonna focus on Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna worship him. We're gonna remind ourselves of the story that we're a part of and we're gonna invite his presence to come and fill us with the strength and the power that we need to actually do this. I don't know when the last time you actually tried to stand on top of water was, but usually it doesn't work. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the supernatural power and presence of God among us and around us to actually say yes to this. And so we're gonna (coughs) invite him to come tonight too. So why don't you close your eyes. I'm gonna read this uh, prayer and then uh, the guys are going to going to lead us and i think maybe as they begin we'll just stay seated and then there's a few things we want to pray for as they, as they play and then we'll all uh, finish in, in worship together so let me pray father god let us stay in you since if we be all in you we cannot be far from one another though some may be in heaven and some upon the earth Lord Jesus tonight we confess our fear we confess our pain We confess we are full of questions. And yet, Lord, we long, we long to be the kind of community that demonstrates another way. A way of life. A way of love. Way of peace, the Holy Spirit, would you come?